This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Grab its new game, Time Watch, or any of its supplements at a 10% discount. For a limited time, use the voucher code TIMEHUT at the Pelgrane Web Store. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... NASA in the 70s. Election Rap. Darcy Ross. And Sybil. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. It's time to Ask Ken and Robin, and this time in Ask Ken and Robin, two Patreon backers that is Michael Kachi and Michael Grasso, two Michaels, ask Ken and Robin, I'd love to know more about NASA in the 1970s. Foils, controversies, hidden agendas, and so on. From the perspective of Moondust Man, of course. So, Ken, remind everybody what Moondust Man is. Moondust Man is my gumshoe campaign frame set in 1978 in which you play the secret investigators of UFOs and UFO crash sites. You are part of the secret project Moondust uh, behind the public project Blue Book. You go around and uh, investigate UFOs and figure out what's going on. And that is uh, the setting. And within that setting, obviously, NASA would play an enormous role because... You are just out of the moon program and uh, you're in the uh, beginnings of the space shuttle. So there's all manner of excitement going on in, in the NASA universe as well. Plus, of course, NASA is part of uh, Majestic 12. So they're sort of your boss in a way. Uh, there's all manner of possibilities going on uh, back there at Cape Canaveral or Houston or wherever. So uh, what is NASA doing specifically in the Moondust Men setting? In the Moondust Men setting, that would be one of the things that you would probably want to slowly reveal as the GM that uh, obviously since it's part of Majestic 12, uh, at least some of NASA or much of NASA knows what's going on to some extent. They know that there are aliens. They know that uh, the aliens are messing with us. They're trying to respond in whatever way that they can. And then it's up to the GM to decide in what you know level that is. Or do we have the covert space program, uh, the so beloved of uh, the alternative three people, or do we have just uh, that NASA is only involved in trying to rapidly reverse engineer the alien equipment to build a independent space capacity for America? 
And those are sort of two different answers as to what NASA is up to. And I suppose the third one is that NASA is by and large a false front. And there's a unit within NASA, a secret directorate within NASA that is uh, conspiring with Majestic 12 to engage in whatever deviltry and uh, sneakiness Majestic 12 is up to. And that is the, um, I, I guess that's the Richard Hoagland thesis is that, uh, the Werner von Braun cadre of Nazis and Freemasons has, um, uh, set up themselves as a, as a tiny little cult. There was a book called the Torbit Papers that came out a long while back that argued that, uh, the, the sort of the NASA, you know, security, uh, I think they were called the DISC are actually a covert, um, uh, intelligence arm of NASA and that they're sneaking around killing people, uh, possibly including the president. And, um, that would be Kennedy, not other presidents, not the secret president. He's okay. Um, then so the, uh, uh, and so that, I guess, is your, is your other version of NASA. So you've got NASA as the people who are running the second space program, NASA as the cover organization or the simple reverse engineering, uh, home, and then NASA as the host of a secret, uh, malign bureaucracy, uh, probably descended from, uh, Werner Braun Brown and his fellow Nazis who got brought over under Operation Paperclip in the forties. Right. So in their secret meetings, they have their own NASA logo where the last two letters have been changed to couple of different letters to, to other letters or that the, yeah. um, uh, the, the, the big uh, rocket has got um, uh, a, uh, a German Eagle on it, not an American Eagle. And so uh, since this podcast hates Nazis, as it does, as it does, uh, those uh, seem like a pretty good group of uh, villains to uh, go up against and sort of fits the kitschy flavor, uh, not only of uh, moon dust men, but of sort of seventies, uh, pop culture. That's when boys from Brazil came mm-hmm. out and they, uh, you know, that the, there were non neo Nazis who could still presumably come out and do things. I mean, so, the other thing you would, you would have to decide also is did NASA fake the moon landing? Right. That's the other big conspiracy. And my favorite take on it is that, uh, yes, Kubrick filmed the moon landing, uh, but being Kubrick, he filmed it on the moon. Yes. <laughs> he didn't do it to fake it. He just wanted to make, wanted sure to make it a really accurate, uh, fake movie. Yeah. And and he really annoyed uh, Neil Armstrong with the 112 takes. That's right. Yes, that's that's why he left out A in uh, a small step for man, um, because uh, he got so mad at Kubrick, he kept <laughs> blowing the line. It is weird after all of that that Kubrick kept the bum take. Well, but... you know, it was it was the it was the one that had the best uh, bouncing. Right, and so uh, it, it does seem weird to have aliens are real, but we. Fake the moon landing. Yeah, that and so that's in, that's in where that sort of secondary space program, or that there was covert. Uh, I forget if it's original with Warren Ellis. If it's not, he deserves all the credit, or if it is, he deserves all the credit. But the notion that there's the overt project Apollo and the covert project Artemis, and that Apollo is to be done out in the daylight so that everyone can see it and worship America's heroes, and Project Artemis is the real space program. It's that we've been on the moon since the fifties, guys, and. Artemis may have fed into things like Edgar Mitchell, for example, seeing UFOs and uh, not and being imperfectly silenced by them, uh, by by the by the government about it. And the secret of Apollo 17 that they found a robot head in Crater Shorty and brought it back to Earth. And uh, when they dropped uh, the 17 lander on on the moon to figure out about moonquakes, they took the uh, geodetic uh, readings from that. And then those geodetic readings are classified and one of the FACO ones got released because they revealed crystal domes in some of the craters. All kinds of great secret moon stuff if you dig into that that mythology and you can make as much or li- as little of it true as you want. 
Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of your project Artemis more than I am a fan of your faking the moon landing, but that's just because I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I believe that the secret government could get things done. Yeah. The moon landing just being fake just means that cool thing you think happened didn't happen. That's, right. That's like one of the all time boringest conspiracies. Yeah. Um, cause usually you try to create a conspiracy theory that makes the world more wondrous, uh, wondrous and evil usually, mm-hmm. but more, you know, less mundane. And that's the conspiracy that. Oh no! Everything's boring yeah, and sucks. Just, uh, just Idaho. Um, so, how do we uh, make this into a campaign? If the uh, if we've got Project Artemis uh, and we've got our uh, core of evil Nazis, core of evil Nazis, uh, how do we uh, activate those two things? How do they uh, relate? Is are the Nazis in control of Artemis, and we have to bust everything down? The Nazis are are the very least a core part of Artemis because it was probably uh, you know German zero point uh, energy research that allowed project artemis to get started or something like that so the the i think that the fun sort of arc of the campaign is a secret war for project artemis between the old von brown nazi corps and the sort of kennedy-esque uh ask not what your country can do for you core of of apollo so it's a war you know sort of between apollo and artemis and the freemasons can be, you know, contra Hoagland, they can be on the side of good because Neil Armstrong is a Freemason and Neil Armstrong is on the side of good by definition. And so you can, um, uh, you can have that sort of playing out in the, in the background, the ongoing question about Skylab, what goes on to Skylab? Will it be, you know, a mind control ray? Will it be, um, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen up there? We're in a situation where we're doing the Soyuz program with the Russians. And so actually we just stopped them in 75, but we're still, we're still talking about it, certainly. And so right. the question well, is, 75 is 70. What, are the, what are the Russians up to? Um, uh, and, and are they, can they be once more brought in to help defeat Nazis or are we then allowing filthy commies into our, um, uh, into our secret programs and, and what do we need? And maybe the Russians know stuff and we have to get their cooperation. So it, it can be, uh, I think the, the fun is that as you go through, you're using more and more of your privileged knowledge as part of Moondust to try and break the Nazis out of Project Artemis without blowing the whole thing wide open and causing the uh, public to to panic and all the bad stuff that uh, Majestic 12 fears uh, to come true. And then the the greys come out into the open and start, you know, nuking cities instead of just kidnapping yokels. So in this version, you are already in the know. You are the, the good half of Artemis. And suddenly there's an inciting incident where you... Uh, realize that the uh, cell that's been uh, in there all along has decided to release its cancer and and uh, hit the lever and uh, and try to take over. And so you're uh, trying to fight them. Now, I, I, I hate to uh, quibble, but the question says 70s, which of course brings us into like uh, Watergate and the, the Carter malaise. Mm-hmm. What would the uh, sort of 70s version of this be we've had the kennedy-esque one but well the, the, i mean this is the 70s because this is the after apollo uh, the moon pro- project is is basically over and now it's the it, it and so now we're in the now what era of space right so you're the you're the holdovers from the kennedy optimism well, you are the are the new bunch of moon dust men who've come in you have you maybe you discover that project artemis exists as part of your ongoing thing, you look into Project Artemis and you find this, uh, that the Kennedy holdovers are about to be wiped out by the Von Braun, um, uh, uh, core. And you, it, it is your knowledge and your ability to deploy alien technology and, uh, give or, uh, cover up alien facts 
that allows that puts you in a position of power player in this uh, covert war for the soul of uh, NASA. Right. So you're not the Kennedy guys. The Kennedy guys are to provide you the right. uh, exposition exactly. and the motivation. Yeah, you're not Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They uh, you meet them in a suitably awe inspiring moment where they say, "We can't fight this openly." But you, you can fight in the shadows. Go, go with our blessing. Yes, you with your wide ties and your laser. Exactly. And your, uh, and, and your Dayton funk. And your Chuck Mangione right, record. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, the rule is, uh, that whenever we mention Chuck Mangione, we move on to another segment. So, uh, let's wave hello to our commercial. And then at the, uh, other side of the commercial, we'll wave hello to our next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. This is... The Politics Hut. Well, Ken, I I was wrong. I I mispredicted this. People are saying I was prescient because (laughs) I was saying never underestimate Rob Ford, <laughs> but you will note it if you actually go back and listen to uh, all of our Is Donald Trump the Rob Ford of America segments, I never predicted, actually, that uh, what happened a week ago now, uh, as we were recording this on uh, election night, was going to happen. After the results came down, uh, of course, there was a, a great ripple uh, went through the force. One of our Twitter followers, however said, well, at least we'll get an amusing Ken and Robin segment out of this. Ken, are we amused? Uh, Well, um, in the immortal words of Lord Byron, if I laugh at any mortal thing, it is that I may not weep. So, sure, let's be amused. Yes. Um, (laughs) And you'll notice that from every every Rob Ford segment I did, with the exception of the one where he was just threat at the beginning where he's threatened of uh, losing his mayoralty over a $1,500 campaign uh, irregularity. Every one of those segments, I say, I don't think this is actually funny. Yeah. So with, <laughs> and, with and that then we just kept Ken, laughing. <laughs> yes. So uh, we were both surprised by the outcome, yeah. Ken. I also never predicted this during our various Rob Ford segments. I, like everyone else in the entire political media, said, except for the one or two people who are now doing I told you so dances, but Everyone else, mathematically, in the entire political media, I said, there's no chance. I said there was no chance he would get the nomination. I said he'd be out by Christmas. I said he couldn't beat uh, the more disciplined Ted Cruz. I said that he was going to be toast in the general. And then 
look at that. We're going to have a game show host go up on the White House walls next to um, uh, Washington and Lincoln, or more probably Franklin Pierce. So I, uh, and, and I too was wrong. I thought, in fact, that uh, Clinton would outperform the final polls when, uh, actually, she hit the final polls in the popular vote, kind of, but not in uh, the states that uh, that made the difference. But I forgot in being presented with this uh, apparent evidence and having read uh, Sasha Isenberg's book, uh, The Victory Lab, which was all about uh, data in campaigning and how the Obama data machine was the best one ever. And of course, the implication is that this was even better. So I guess he's going to have to write a sequel called The Humiliating Failure Machine. Um, <laughs> Ada, meet Orca. Orca, yeah. meet Ada. Yeah, so I, I uh, let, let that obscure the thing that I always say, which is uh, in an American presidential election, and probably in almost every election, if it's tight, and when isn't an election tight, the candidate who is best on television wins. Part of the fog of war here is that Trump seemed uh, uh, repellent and horrible on television. He seemed <laughs> to be the bad guy. But, of course, he's a television star. And, in a way, America has elected uh, a cable drama anti-hero as its president. It has selected Walter White or Tony Soprano or uh, someone who he has, obviously, this energy. And uh, there are theories of communications that suggest that people respond more to people's affects than to anything it is that they're saying. And someone uh, who has the quality of a Rob Ford or a Donald Trump with all of the, the other, uh, you know, more substantive things that applies, they just have, sort of have a bigness about their presentation. He was that, bigly. It's bigly yeah. that uh, causes uh, someone who is really good on television, whether they are, are really good in a way that makes you feel great or in this weirder way of these uh, more sort of festeringly uh, insecure uh, figures, uh, they are uh, compelling in a way that sort of, I think, allows people to project onto them a degree of hope, even if there's another conscious layer going, I don't really like this guy. And to the extent that we can trust exit polling, which we mostly can't, <laughs> it seems like there's a, uh, you know, a sliver of uh, a band of people who didn't like him and didn't trust him and still voted for him. Yes, about a third. And yeah. that's about the same percentage that didn't like and didn't trust Hillary and voted for her. Uh, both of them had equal negatives by the end of the campaign, uh, hovering around 60% to 65, depending on exactly which poll you read and how they asked the question. So both candidates uh, were uniquely terrible. And one of them was uniquely terrible, but good on TV. And the other was uniquely terrible and terrible on TV. And also probably in a election that I think if you want to start uh, hindsighting, you can go back to Johnny Ernst's amazing blowout in Iowa for the Senate race when she blew the polls away by, I think, 10 points. And you began to think, well, maybe there's something to someone who is made fun of by uh, what in Iowa passes for elites uh, coming out of nowhere and clobbering everybody. Maybe this is a new thing. Maybe the rural counties are going to get up off their hind legs and come out and vote this time. And indeed, that's what they did. Because if you look at the margins of victory in the upper Midwest, where Trump did, in fact, break through the famed Democratic blue wall, it was those rural, almost overwhelmingly white counties that had gone strong for Obama in 08 and less strong, but they weren't going to vote for Mitt Romney in 12. 
because as someone said, he's the guy who fires your dad in the movie. So by the time it comes to 16, they, they noticed that their hope and change had not hoped or changed for much. So they went with the next guy who promised to blow everything up. And a lot of it is, yes, he's great on TV. So that let him get through that crowded primary field. But a lot of it is also the message of, um, in, in a, in a, per, in a sort of a paradoxical way, the more people said, you guys realize he has no business being president. That's the more the people who wanted someone with no business being president to be president said, yes, that's kind of our point. And that's, that's where we get back to the, the Rob Ford uh, parallel, because these figures are all about the revenge of the ridiculous. Because these figures are ridiculous, they attract ridicule from other people who feel they are being ridiculed, and therefore they identify with this figure. And that's, uh, you know, the uh, understandable side of, of populism, I guess, or the thing that we need to, to pay more attention to. Well, there's to. a lot of and understandable sides of populism. There's that sort of social side, which I don't think we can count out. I mean, when you have a campaign surrogate saying on Twitter, officially, I can't wait for all white men to die, it's probably not a terrifying fact that white men are going to say, you know what, we're going to vote against you. But on the other hand, there's also the fact that the last 30 years have not been good for that ring of counties in the upper Midwest. And, you know, two wars and a recession, or three wars, if you count Libya, um, have indicated that maybe leaving things to the Yale experts is also not going to work out so well. So who can say, right? Yeah, there's been a massive, uh, I mean, what we're looking at here in, in a way is, uh, and part of why this uh, is terrifying is that we're seeing a collapse of elite institutions and that you can look at the Trump campaign as basically a DDoS attack on all of these institutions that thought they were stable and thought things were more or less ticking along. And it turns out that nothing is as stable as it, as it quite looks. Well, I mean, as a, as a, as a Calvinist, I knew nothing was as stable as it looked. And right. as um, a Republican, I'm probably not so terrified at the collapse of elite institutions. And if, the Republican elite somehow also gets its deserved destruction. As someone pointed out, whatever else Trump has accomplished, he's destroyed the Bush and Clinton dynasties. So for that, you know, the thanks of a grateful nation, I guess. But, you know, uh, the trouble is then there's going to be more. <laughs> uh, right. Because the question is, I guess this brings us uh, uh, from what the heck just happened to what the heck is going to happen. And, and uh, oddly enough, knowing what the heck is going to happen is more difficult to pin down than to analyze in retrospect uh, what has happened. So the thing about Trump is that he talks about the fact that he wishes to be unpredictable and that he wishes to come at us by surprise. And he certainly reinforces that by taking every available position on every matter. And uh, so I uh, consider America a nice place to visit, but Ken, uh, you live there. Mm -hmm. So let's find out uh, this, this new mini segment within the Politics Hut. What DEFCON is Ken at? So let's go through various uh, scenarios and you can uh, uh, tell us uh, how likely you think each of them is, knowing that uh, you know, likeliness varies. <laughs> right. and, it's a and that I've been wrong about everything about this election before, so why start now? In yeah. in fairness, what I should do is is predict a comfortable re-election for Donald Trump so that um, I can be wrong again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think that right now, I mean, if you want to go back and look at what's going to happen, uh, actually, a re-election is not outside the realm of possibility. We, If we've gone through 1968, the next thing that happens with the outsider ridiculous figure is that they waltz to victory because their foes 
who can't believe they lost to this guy go bananas for four years. Uh, well, this, this is this is option number two on my list. Yeah. Should we backpedal to option one? Have I skipped Let's by going to Nixon? backpedal option one. So option one is the thing that you were afraid of mm-hmm. uh, before he got elected, which is actually he is a Democrat in sheep's clothing, that he will get into power and he will basically uh, govern as the Democrat that he used to be. Maybe uh, Obama has promised to teach him some presidenting and make, <laughs> might work some Jedi mind tricks on him. This, so this would be, this would be more terrifying if Obama were any good at presidenting, but <laughs> uh, he creates the, uh, the, the infrastructure. Uh, he has a big infrastructure package and he's the one who actually cements the uh, ACA under a, uh, a different name. Uh, the, the Trump bigly uh, Medicare system and basically governs as a Democrat. What do you think the chances of that hap- happening are given the, staffing and uh, cabinet choices we've seen uh, confirmed and floated so far. Well, I mean, it's not just the question of does he govern as a Democrat. It's he has to get stuff like that through the Senate and the House, both of which are Republican and neither of which are in the hands of Trump loyalists by any stretch of the imagination. Right now, I think the uh, the Freedom Caucus is sort of torn between the the Cruz diehards who didn't want Trump and still don't want Trump and the people who are like, well, he hates most of the people we hate side. So it will take a defter hand than he has shown so far to build a legislative majority out of um, uh, what, uh, uh, whether or not he wants to govern as a Democrat. So what we might see is a system by which he tries to govern as a Democrat is shut down by the Congress. And then Harry Truman like runs against his own Congress in a way and winds up uh, with his own people in the midterms, that again takes a level of organization that we haven't seen. But again, Trump has just demonstrated that organization is perhaps less important if you are really good at um, uh, that bully pulpit stuff. So the uh, we're game designers. So let's assign a number to that possibility. A number to the possibility of him governing as a Democrat or attempting to. I would say let's say twenty percent to that. I will say zero percent. You will say zero. All right. Yes. Uh, next up, we have regular Republican, despite the uh, wave of fear of authoritarianism that is uh, uh, running through uh, not just partisans, but also uh, sort of the, the NATSEC layer of people or people who've been around uh, other uh, countries that have spiraled into authoritarianism, that the parallels turn out to be nothing. And he just he's basically uh, the same as Ted Cruz. He's Republicans will like him. Liberals will really not like him, but it's uh, just another swing in the grand pendulum of political life. And again, that I think is going to if, if uh, McConnell, I mean, right now, Trump uh, and McConnell are locking eyes, not yet horns, but eyes over this infrastructure bank. And I think if McConnell wins that one, then the chances that Trump governs as a Republican with occasional crazy moments goes up if O'Connell, if McConnell loses that. Then we're, you know, we're all in a new territory. I think that the chances, just the institutional inertia of Washington bureaucracy, um, they've, they've held together, they've held back stronger, better governors than Donald Trump is going to be. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, famously six months into his presidency turns to Robert Rubin and says, so what you're saying is I'm the president of the bond market. And Robert Rubin said, yes, that is the whole point. And then Clinton, mo- mostly to his credit, governed as the president of the bond market. Trump may have that same realization. And uh, the, whether or not he wants to 
uh, be a, a transformative change agent. It may be that the, the level of bureaucracy and the level of uh, political uh, forces arrayed against him in his own party, much less the Democrats, will sort of confine him to taking Rince Priebus's and Mike Pence's advice, not uh, Steve Bannon and the elves that live in his head's advice. Right. And for those who are afraid of a, a sudden tumble into uh, authoritarianism, I guess I'm getting a- ahead of my list here. Uh, but uh, if you imagine who will win, you know, Steve Bannon versus Paul Ryan. Oh, gee, we, we already know how that's going to win. But then if you think, who's going to win? Steve Bannon or the wily turtle, Mitch McConnell? It's like, oh, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe things are going to be okay. Um, and, and that's the scenario in which he wins re-election. And uh, everyone goes, oh, so he was like Reagan. We thought he was crazy at first, but we didn't really like his policies. But it w- wasn't a, a shattering blow to American democracy. It turns out there was no nuclear uh, war at all, after all. Right. I, I'd say that that's probably about the 40%. That's the plurality of chance, though far from the majority of chance. Okay, so next we come up to disastrously incompetent regular Republican. And that's where the other 40% is, <laughs> or maybe the 35%, where he, you know, uh, manages to squander his, uh, his goodwill both with his supporters and obviously what fragmentary goodwill he might have with trucklers in the media. Um, uh, but that all goes away. He winds up, uh, trying a bunch of things, each crazier than the last gets us into a shooting war somewhere on the basis of an angry tweet by someone or whatever. And, uh, everything, you know, rains down fire and chaos and the country as a whole says, well, we're not doing that nonsense again. And that, you know, or conversely, uh, the recession that has been boiling on the horizon for the last year comes along and is super bad again. And he's hapless to do anything about it. And he becomes sort of a more clownish Jimmy Carter, which is the other side of the wildly incompetent uh, spectrum. And so I think if you add the crazy person and the feckless, you get another 40%. So maybe 30 and 10 or uh, uh, 25, 25, something like that. You can do the math at home, people. So what you're going to need to do is take all these numbers, put them in a pie chart, and then derive the actual percentages. Right. So uh, next up, we come to democratic kleptocrat that uh, he uh, spends uh, four or uh, probably only four, but maybe eight years just hoovering uh, money into his own pockets and, and of course, that of his uh, family. But it does not uh, change democratic institutions. The next elections that come up are still elections as we know them. I think that's going to be indistinguishable from the other two alternatives, um, because in the same way that, you know, Bill and Hillary did that but were indistinguishable from other democratically elected presidents and governed basically within the mainstream of American politics while stealing everything that wasn't nailed down. Trump will steal everything that isn't nailed down, but the governing part, the part that actually affects whether or not, you know, um, uh, there's riots and whatnot, that sort of ticks along normally. Or it doesn't, but he is still stealing stuff. Our, our, our liberal listeners are going to want to know what the Clinton stole. Okay. The liberal listeners can go look at Clinton Cash. And then come back and uh, ask again. So this is the book that the uh, New York FBI guys want to launch a uh, investigation based on. Have already launched an, uh, an, uh, the Clinton Foundation investigation is open already. So we'll see. I mean, we probably won't see because that's not how FBI's work. But who knows? It's a it's a new crazy day. Now the people who are uh, looking at Steve Bannon and the elves that live in his in his head are worried that the elves are going to get out of his head. And this brings us to the uh, next series of chances. So. Uh, an authoritarian democracy, the large chunk of the population is still behind him, but the outcome 
of elections is no longer in doubt and there is uh, intimidation. We, we have lost American democracy as we know it. Putinism, as it were. Well, I guess the question there would be, are we talking about a permanent Putinism? Uh, like Putin and probably like we're having in Turkey, or are we talking about a more temporary Putinism like we had, uh, in America during the New Deal and, uh, uh briefly during Nixon's administration, uh, and during the latter part of Woodrow Wilson's administration where. So assign numbers to each, uh, Putinism, uh, temporary Putinism. Yeah. I'd, I'd say temporary Putinism is maybe 10% and full on Putinism is down in your single digits. Right. And that's also your, your Erdogan uh, yeah, category. Right, yeah. Is that a different category? Uh, er, er, Erdogan, I mean, again, we'll, we'll find out, but Erdogan is, you know, wants to be, he's the man who wants to be Putin, or I guess he wants to be at a uh, without being at a though. Um, so, you know, Erdo, Erdogan is, is very much the, you know, uh, as long as elections go right, ain't going to have to worry about elections guy. He's very much Erdoganism and Putinism are, you know, uh, a, 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 a hat different, really. And, uh, what is your tripwire where you, uh, start to radically upscale your chances of that happening? What's the thing that gets you from a, a snarky never Trumper who, uh, knows that although you're wrong about the outcome, you were right about your, uh, greater predictions and, uh, you know, that you can then help, uh, stride into the rubble of the Republican party as, as you know it. And, uh, and everything will be basically fine from, uh oh, all these people who are saying, uh, guys, all those people are right. What's your, uh, signal to, to start panicking? Um, I mean, I think it, it varies, right? I mean, it, you don't want to get too far out and start making things up because now you're talking, you know, young adult novels. But I think that any sort of genuine attempt to, uh, round up American citizens for any reason, you know, so, so from, uh, FDR's concentration camps on up would be your sort of, uh, bright light. And then, uh, of course the infrastructure to create that has been, you know, it's been put in place by Obama. So you can't say the infrastructure of a national surveillance state is my sign because that's already happened. Um, you know, it's, it's really, you know, an executive order away. I just don't think it's a likely executive order. So, so what you're offering our, our worried listeners here is mostly assurance um, now, if that happens, if the uh, uh, American citizens start being rounded up, and of course it would be uh, a huge, uh, you know, there's huge humanitarian issues involved with whether, you know, even non-American citizens are being rounded up, that's going to be pretty horrible. So is that a time when people have time to react? Because of course, one of the things, if you're uh, planning to remove the pillars of democracy is you do it pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, time to react is, is relative depending on the country. Uh, some places get uh, knocked over in a hurry. Other places do not get knocked over in a hurry. And we've got 50 tiny little armies out in this country. And many of them are not going to want to go gently into that good night. So we'll see. Um, I think that we are more likely to have, if something like that starts happening, uh, some genuine doctrine of nullification stuff coming back. And then we'll see whether or not which side blinks. Um, I don't think that, for example, if he, you know, uh, starts ordering the FBI to round up all the uh, American Muslims, I think that the governor of New York, the governor of Illinois, the governor of California will say, uh, not our Muslims. And then we'll see what happens. And so I guess the final question then is greatest Russian covert operation ever or greatest covert operation ever? <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, again, uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> keeping, keeping in mind that, uh, uh, the, <laughs> the, the Kaiser put Lenin in charge of Russia and that turned out about as well for him as you'd think. Um, well, yes, our, our, uh, uh gamer and, and international, uh, Russian affairs, uh, expert, uh, Mark Galliotti, his theory is that Putin, like everybody else, went, I'm going to use Trump as a weapon against X. Cause of course, all the, uh, Republican primary contenders are, I'm going to use him as a yes. weapon against Jeff. That Putin is just and Ted then, Cruz written large. <laughs> yeah. And then we've seen, uh, the Clintons campaign. They very explicitly were, we're going to run, uh, hope that Trump wins because we can beat him easily mm -hmm. instead of being jujitsued into campaigning on cultural liberalism. And now, uh, the theory, at least Mark's theory is that, uh, Putin didn't expect Trump to win either. He was just hoping to damage Hillary. Uh, but in terms of the execution of the, uh, not the, uh, I guess the strategic, uh, result has yet to be seen, but tactically speaking, how, how does this rank in the, uh, history of, uh, uh, covert interference? Um, I think in, in terms of great power interference, and again, the, the question of whether or not Trump is an asset or a friendly, I guess, is still an open question. Um, either one is great from Putin's perspective, but, at some level, once you have your own nuclear weapons, it's really hard to be run by your KGB handler or rather your uh, FSB handler. And the the notion that uh, Putin is playing some sort of three-dimensional chess, I think, is also perhaps not entirely borne out. Uh, I think that uh, the notion of Putin as the RNC and the Clintons writ large is is uh, is probably right, that um, the, the part where... You've got a, uh, a, a great, uh, power interfering or involving itself, let's say, in the elections of another great power. That's not super common in the annals of history, although the Soviets certainly tried to involve themselves in all manner of, uh, European elections, uh, basically by owning communist parties. But I think that, you know, what the next level is that, you know, Willy Brandt was, uh, had, uh, Soviet assets as his, uh, as his closest aides. And then you had a similar situation, although less immediately close with Truman. So, you know, this, this is certainly the, if the president elect is even a friendly of your intelligence bureau, I think that's a win. I think that you have to, you know, you get to brag about that in the spy cafe. And finally, we have to address the uh, wave of hate incidents that his uh, election has inspired. And it's not even just, uh, in America, there's been uh, a few incidents here. Part of the question is, uh, here anyway, is this just something that uh, would have happened anyway and not been in the news? Because, of course, people paint swastikas on things all the time. But it certainly seems like for a whole bunch of people, the election of Trump reminded them, hey, I meant to go and paint a bunch of swastikas on a synagogue or uh, threaten the black uh, members of my campus or... Uh, intimidate a, a Muslim and grab at her uh, hijab. So uh, we're entering, you know, even if the, the rosiest of those scenarios uh, is admitted, we're definitely entering a phase where the uh, the goon squad feels empowered. And I'm scared of that, and I'm not the ones the goon squad are going to come after. So uh, it's time to be extra alert and do what you can. Yeah, I mean, obviously that was one of my over and above the completely unqualified for the job problem. That was one of my other problems was that he was at the very least playing patty cake 
with the, uh, the, the white nationalist element, uh, the, the far right, whatever you want to call them, the, you know, the swastika painting crowd, and they are going to feel empowered. And that is the problem with running anything on identity politics is that the fringiest members of that identity start, you know, uh, feeling their oats. And that happens all over the place. And when you are the majority and you get to play identity politics, it's really terrible, which is, again, one of the reasons I didn't want Trump to be the president or the candidate or anything. So, yeah, uh, try and be grownups. Try and be decent. Don't be a jerk. And if you see extra jerky things going on, let let people know that at least in your ambit, it's still Goldwater time, not Trump time. Because, uh, Ken, this podcast still hates Nazis. Oh, yes. So much. I mean, obviously, we will we will make bank on their uh, on their graphic design, but we hate them. We hate them as people. Uh, well, and if there's anybody uh, in this uh, time of hate who deserves to have hate channeled at them, I think we've uh, summed that up. So, Ken, I hope that your well, if, I, even your analysis has a non-zero chance that this was the last American election. So there's always a non-zero chance that it's the last American election. I mean, there's there's only uh, civic trust. Uh, that keeps everything together, and oh, well, uh, that, that then, oh, is a okay. resource that is harder oh, to Oh, the reassurance meter. It's dropping yeah, again. It's, it's dropping. No, there, there's always a non-zero chance. Every president has the capacity to really screw something up, and occasionally they do that, and we as a nation say, well, that was too far, and we elect uh, Warren Harding in the largest landslide in American history. But every so often we say, ah, that was probably okay, and then there's uh, decades and decades and decades of awfulness. So... Who can say, right? Right. Well, if, if this was the last one, you guys sure did a, a bang-up uh, job on the on the final act there. Yes, the special effects were killer. That's what we liked. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Diane Donaldson. Michael Bowman. Christopher Gunning. Neil Kaplan. And Fear the Boot.
Hello and welcome to Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. Tonight it's just Ken talking to somebody else, the somebody else, Darcy Ross, blogger, podcaster, and as of this weekend, game designer extraordinaire Darcy and I are at Metatopia, which as listeners of Ken and Robin talk about stuff know is half game convention and half empanada delivery service. Darcy, how has your first Metatopia rated on those and other metrics? Uh, I'm going to start with the low point, which was the empanada uh, situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ken promised empanadas from the day I got there, and there were no empanadas at the lobby the first night. But from that from that dark time, everything <laughs> has since been great. And just to clarify, you did get empanadas. We did get empanadas. And who brought you to that empanada establishment, Darcy? Uh, it might have been a Ken. It might have been a Ken. <laughs> just Keeping the record clear. Do note. Uh, yeah, uh, they're they pretty great. Uh, other metrics. Uh, Metatopia was great for all the people who live on the internet who are fabulous. Come here and exist in Meat Space, which was fabulous for me to uh, experience. I got to play test a game that I very hastily wrote, as you know. Um, and it turned out it was a game. And it could play. Uh, and it was a LARP. Shocking all of us. So that was pretty great. It's called An Empty Page. Uh, and it probably won't be out for ages and ages. So don't get too excited. Yeah, it's still in OVO being developed. Very much. And uh, Metatopia is a g- good place to develop a LARP in OVO or a great place to develop a LARP in OVO? Uh, I would say great, um, especially compared to other cons that I tend to frequent, right? Um, this has a, a bunch of really smart minds with respect to a lot of different traditions of uh, gaming, I think, especially with LARPs. Uh, so I had two play tests, um, one which had a group with uh, mostly traditional RPG players, and that worked really well, and they were they were LARPing, and they, they could grok it. And then uh, I had people who actually knew what a LARP was in my game, and uh, they assured me that it was indeed a LARP, and um, and that the mechanics were working, and it felt felt like a good LARP to them. So um, And they had a lot of really cool ideas, and um, a, there's a lot of expertise here about, you know, suggestions of what to go read next, what to go look into. Um, so I have a, I'm coming away with a ton to chew on, which is also good. Well, for um, people who are listening uh, and might want to go make LARPs, you you want to share maybe the top one or two of the suggestions you've got here at Metatopia for what resources are out there for people who might want to build a LARP or do something like that? Uh, yes. I'm wondering if I wrote down one of them uh, in my phone or not. There's a, something we'll put in the show notes of some some <laughs> book. Um, Is it Nordic LARP? It's, I think, a series of essays um, or a bunch of small LARPs, and, and they might be Nordic LARPs. Right. Um, but there's a book, a compendium called Nordic LARP that was a Diana Jones I forget it was. A, I think it was a winner. That might have been it then. Yeah. Um, cool. That's probably it. Okay. Uh, I know nothing about LARPs going in. <laughs> so uh, the the other resources, I guess, would be um, that uh, one thing they brought up that you know coming coming from not knowing jack about LARPs, they were like, oh, your LARP could use a workshop, and the whole concept of workshops is foreign to me, right? Like you're either playing the game or you're not. What the, what the heck is this intermediate? Um, and so I still don't know anything about that, but I think the the recommended book of LARPs, the Nordic LARPs, has a bunch of written out workshops, um, and so that's to sort of. Uh, set up your characters before you actually play so you can kind of get to the juicy bits faster, which should be interesting. And you are not just new to LARPs compared to grizzled veterans like Robin and myself. You're (laughs) new to the whole scene, but in the course of it, You've sort of been conquering on all fronts, like the Mongols, uh, (laughs) blogger, podcaster, alpha fan, um, (laughs) and now game designer. Uh, Talk about your blog, podcast, ultra fanness are they they're sort of overlap but but maybe not what what's the what's the darcy story uh as it exists right now i have to go to to one of my second favorite phyla 
for this. Uh, <laughs> um, so, well, that's right. For people who don't know, Darcy is also uh, an expert snailologist, a University of Chicago trained snailologist. <laughs> well, I want to talk about annelids. Uh, I usually study gastropods, which are uh, mollusks in the and superior to annelids in every way. They are, but annelids have have a soft, uh, squicky part war, place in my heart as well. Um, and they have uh, a number of them, especially polychaetes, have these great uh, little little you know tentacles coming off of them from all around their body and they they can really extend them they look like you know superhero uh elastic men right they can really they're tiny shoggoths is what i'm they're tiny shoggoths exactly um i am also a tiny shoggoth with respect to my uh infiltration of the rpg world um i've been sending out little feelers i guess i i I, I'm not. I'm not a juggernaut as Ken is, but I'm. I have a little bit of toes in everything. I think. Um, but those of us who are expert juggernaut spotters are seeing one in the making right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I expect some of those tentacles to get brutally cut off and totally fail. I was expecting it to be the game design one, and that hasn't happened yet. But it could be imminent. But yeah, I just there's a, there's such a surprising low barrier to entry for a lot of these things, right? Um, for podcasting, you know, anybody with a microphone can be a podcaster. Any two jerks with a microphone can exactly. have a podcast for years and years and years. <laughs> so, uh, you know, kind of uh, in, in the desire to get away from my on-fire snail research from time to time, I've been spending time um, tr- trying my hand at all these different uh, steps. And uh, so I, I definitely recommend anybody else to give themselves permission and give it a shot because even if you crash and burn, uh, there's such there's such a low, um, there's so little punishment that comes with that. You know, you can still learn a lot and can be fun. And, and plug the plug the podcast. It's yeah. the Cypher cast. Cypher speak. Cypher speak with yep. you and Troy Pickleman, yep. the, the Garfunkel to your Simon. Yes. The uh, Oats to your Hall. He's fabulous. Uh, it's definitely helpful to have a have a pod buddy. I do tend to work in groups for all of my projects, right? Like gnomes do. I, I tend to do interviews too. I like to work with people. Um, the game I designed was with two collaborators, uh, so John Harness and Elizabeth Sander. Um, and I just I, I usually need a good sounding board. And I think you know for gnomes do for for cipher speak for my game an empty page. They they all work well if you want to work with others too. Speaking of working with groups, uh, one of your other areas that I, I I don't know to what extent you are a rising power behind the throne or a strong right arm, but you're a big part of the Contessa, women game masters, running games for women, female-oriented games at Gen Con. Talk a little about about Contessa, about what you guys are doing and how you became a, a countess. Is that what all contestants are? Or are you a, a marchioness waiting to become a countess? I think I was gifted the title... Midwest regional czar or something. I didn't know a czar was Zarina. like a subord- subordinate title to a countess. <laughs> it's a complicated hierarchy. I'll, right, I'll, I'll yeah. write it out for you later. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. I At Gen Con a few years back, I... What did I do? I sat in on a Contessa game and some of their events. They had a, a Shauna Germain and Margaret Weiss come give keynote speech, and they were really interesting. They had a lot of really good programming that year. They had a lot of games that they were having female game masters run. They had workshops and panels, and I was super on board. It was really interesting programming. It was fascinating to see a room, you know, rooms full of women in, in places that I don't usually see them, like at Gen Con. So I raved to the organizers and... Uh, they happen to need more volunteers. And they put you to work. They put me that's, to work. That's the punishment for liking things. Yeah, mistakes. Don't ever compliment anyone for anything. Yes. <laughs> You'll get roped in. Become Especially surly you can't say and no. distanced. Exactly. So what, have, so what have you been doing as Midwest Zarina? Gen Con. That's, that's my baby. That's what I love to see. That's when I think we shine the best. There's, there's a lot of things that uh, Contessa wants to do 
and has been doing. Contessa right now is actually at UConn organizing events there and trying to make that kind of their home con and kind of a bigger deal and, and trying to grow into, into that space. But Gen Con is where I, where I met Contessa, where I think it's going to hit a lot of eyes and going to uh, be important to a lot of people. So what I, my, my role this year was planning programming and grabbing new GMs to come GM for us, encouraging them and hoping to be supportive to them. Uh, we had some cool workshops. We had some cool panels. But the big game night all in one room is really where it shines. And uh, so I think that's mostly been my my baby is trying to make sure that that, that event happens, that it has funding so that we can buy badges for people so that often a kind of a more mar- we can support this more marginalized group to come to come game master for us. And it seems to make a pretty big impact. I was really proud of it this year. Uh, I think we all want to do more year-round. We have a blog that has won awards in the past, but we need more writers. So if anyone's listening and knows uh, and is a lady who writes or uh, is a female-identified person or knows people like that who would like to write for our blog, we are very welcoming to bringing more hands in. It's, It's a big project and it's a big initiative, and we could use all the help we can get. Sort of on that same wavelength, uh, people have been listening to you and, of course, eager to play your LARPs and read your columns, listen to your podcasts, play in games that you run at Contessa. What would you say if someone wants to boldly, daringly take the step of emulating you and becoming uh, someone who is sort of moving into the scene, all uh, analid tentacles for uh, to the forefront, wants to sort of jump in both feet first the way that you have? Do you have any specific advice for the for the next Darcy, for the Darcy Darcy's who follow you, lesser Darcy's that they may be? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> but if you if you if you do, oh, you're already a seasoned season cynical industry pro. It's so little time for you to say that. It comes very <laughs> fast. Uh, however, if you are going to do it, if you are stubborn and you can't say no to things, then. I think what helped me the most is uh, engaging with people online on Google+, just getting to know what, what conversations are happening in, in our communities on Twitter, and just talking to people and being willing to shoot an email to someone and uh, talk about their ideas or, or try to get a Skype meeting. Uh, going to cons, going to uh, different cities, and just, you know, if you're visiting a city, hit up someone you know that's there. People are, you know, this this there is a fairly low barrier to get to talk to some of the people doing the best things in our community uh, just because it's so small still. So take advantage of that and be brave, I think, is, is what I would say. I, I think one thing, if, if you're going to be a Darcy but better, here's what I would recommend. One thing I tend to do is I really like supporting other people whose work I respect, and I'm a little more timid in putting my own my own thoughts and ideas and taking brave steps of my own out there. And I think that's something that we could all use more of in that if you were going to be a better Darcy, support people, engage with people, do fun things, and, and be part of big projects that are great, but also put yourself out there and try to make things that are maybe a little more scary for you to make. And then I'll get to watch you crash and burn, and I'll <laughs> laugh in my tower about how I've, how I've trapped another would-be Darcy. And, and those who were wondering, what is this positive, wonderful person doing with the cynical, hard-bitten environs of Ken and Robin? Now you know. Now you know. Now you know. Like Dr. Moreau, you are all playthings for her to vivisect <laughs> at, her, at her will. And if you disagree, you're going to the House of Pain. So let's turn to your own gaming, uh, because we have a little bit of space left in the gaming hut here, our, our Metatopian gaming hut. Have you played anything at Metatopia that you're really excited uh, that has either informed your design or has informed your play later? Is there a game that you're really hyped up about playing in the future? What's your what's your sort of, as you uh, slingshot orbit out of Metatopia, what, what is providing that reaction mass? Ooh, great question. 
I, I didn't get to play in a game by Jay Lee, but she's someone I really respect online. She writes these beautiful essays. She's a LARPright. She's a brilliant thinker and a kind person. And I, I finally got to meet her here. I didn't get to play in any of her games, but I'm, I got to, I was gifted a, a solo LARP to play by myself. Ooh. So I'm going to play that on the airplane home, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I forget the title and I don't know if how public it is, but she's wonderful. I'm excited to finally get to play a thing by Jay Lee. Isn't a solo LARP just pretending you're Malcolm Reynolds? <laughs> or something else? I, I mean, it all converges on Malcolm Reynolds. Oh, yeah. However, yeah. yes. <laughs> But the, the game I did play, I did get to play test two games this, this year. It was just, just Got Real, and it's a kind of action movie, very rules light game, but uh, it produced, it, it, it had a really neat, cute little note card character generation, and it, it was more subtle in the ways that it made players build their characters while thinking about the other PCs. And I, I was really inspired by that. It's not, it's not as beating you in the head about what is your connection to other PC, which you have to you know, front load. It's a little more, uh, you're thinking about your role in the party. So you're still thinking about your character, but it's, it, it gets you to turn just that little bit toward your PCs and remember they're there uh, throughout play, which is really cool. So uh, I think that's very heavily in playtest right now and getting moved around, but it's called Just Got Real. All right. Um, on that note of turning towards your PC, we shall turn away to the final embers of Metatopia and slake our thirst therein. Thanks so much, Darcy, for being on Canon Robin. And we will, I'm sure, talk to you about stuff later. Delta Green, the ultra-covert... Some might say rogue... ...intelligence agency that battles the cosmic forces of the Cthulhu mythos... ...is once again recruiting. You might say they have a high churn rate... ...but that's neither here nor there. What is both here and there is that Delta Green Agent's Handbook... ...and Delta Green Need to Know... ...the quick start rules with scenario and very sturdy handler screen... ...are both in stores now from Arc Dream Publishing. The Agent's Handbook netted five stars and 29 out of 29 reviews on Amazon... ...and one silver for best supplement at the Annie's. It features all the rules you need to play your shadow war against Nirlathotep and company. Includes substantial chapters on tradecraft. And insider profiles of U.S. federal agencies and special forces. Useful in any game that features covert action. But especially useful when you join Delta Green. Looking for a few good people. And probably a few more good people after that. The level gaze of the alien big cats, the creepy cold spot that floats across the floor, the thump of the moving coffins tell us we are once more in the exotic and ununderstandable confines of the Elliptony hut, but the alien big cat seems to be gazing inward, and the cold spot is three cold spots, and the coffins are moving in a contrapuntal way, because we are Ken and Ken and Ken and Robin and Robin and Robin, talking about Sybil, Robin who, what, why, Sybil? So I recently read, as part of my policy of occasionally just uh, keeping a list of uh, random uh, books, uh, either about, or in this case, in my list of electronic books that I can borrow from the Toronto Public Library, that are just sort of there at random. I'm not doing any particular research, but uh, you got to have a, a wide field of vision, both in fiction and, and nonfiction. And so I picked up a book 
called Sybil Exposed by Debbie Nathan. And as often happens when you randomly pick up a book in order to not relate to what you're working on, there was a bunch of stuff in it that is directly related <laughs> to, to what I'm working on. <laughs> Colin Wilson wins again. To, to the uh, uh, Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, one of the uh, figures in that appears in this because uh, it turns out hypomosis is a, a common thread uh, and is, as we know, is a common thread in elliptony. And so as we go through yes. this story, we will perhaps uh, see why this is in the elliptony hut. At any rate, uh, from the title Sybil Exposed, you expect a savage debunking and a thorough debunking of uh, the Sybil case uh, you get. Uh, Nathan is definitely a, uh, a skeptic of the case, uh, but she also writes a very understanding and empathetic story of the three main uh, figures in the story, who are all women, and uh, has an interesting take on how the popularity of both the book, Sybil, uh, in the late 60s and 70s, and especially the TV movie that popularized it even more, uh, had on young women during the 70s. Uh, before we move deeper into the debunking, perhaps we should set up the Sybil story, and it would not be the Sybil 101, it would be the Sybil 303. Right. Indeed, yes. So Sybil, yes. uh, as she was called in the book and the movie, was actually a woman named Shirley Mason. She grew up in a small town called Dodge Center, Minnesota. Her parents were Seventh-day Adventists, and it was a pretty strict upbringing. And uh, the Seventh-day Adventists were extremely ascetic and fundamentalist at that point, so that, uh, for example, being interested in any sort of art was sinful. And uh, reading novels was sinful and wanting to create art was sinful. And guess what? She had an inclination toward art. And uh, this was uh, thoroughly... I think you mean towards sin. Well, uh, <laughs> that was definitely the, the uh, conflict in her household with her uh, parents who uh, otherwise uh, seemed like completely normal uh, citizens of Dodge Center, uh, Minnesota. And uh, there was a Seventh-day Adventist uh, community there, enough so they had their own school and so forth. But she didn't go to that school. She went to a public school. But at any rate, even as a teenager, uh, she was experiencing uh, not just this conflict, but uh, definitely had symptoms of something, a lot of physical symptoms, and she was beginning to kind of uh, have little blackout experiences. And so she went to a psychiatrist uh, named Dr. Connie Wilbur and was briefly treated by her then and developed this great bond with her. But then Connie Wilbur moved away and that might have been the end of the story. And Connie Wilbur is another really interesting figure. And Ken, I think you will uh, appreciate this story because if you can think of a thing that you can are skeptical about in the world of psychology and psychiatry, which is almost <laughs> all of it. Uh, I, I, I believe that there is a brain and that it has an effect. Sure. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> um, but uh, Wilbur, over the course of her career, as she was a uh, woman in the field at a time when there weren't other women in the field and she had to overcome a lot of obstacles to uh, move into a position of influence. And then after the, the war ended, when uh, she lost her teaching position because the guy who had had her job before her came back from the war, so pfft, out of there, right? But even with all of those obstacles, she managed to be at the forefront of a bunch of key psychological or psychiatric techniques. However, there are ones like 
narcosynthesis, which is, uh, can you laugh? Uh, explain to our readers what narcosynthesis is. I, I believe that narcosynthesis is uh, doping patients up on drugs and interrogating them in an attempt to, I mean, basically it's like truth serum, except, you yes. know, it's Except truth not... serum isn't truth serum. Uh, <laughs> yes, pentothal, right. uh, we think of it, especially in the nerd world, uh, as truth serum, because of course it's a staple element of uh, comic book spy stories. But pentothal is, it's a barbiturate. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, what it does just, is you're it, just getting really high or yeah. low, I guess. And uh, <laughs> it makes you very cooperative with someone who is asking you questions, and you will answer those questions uh, seemingly truthfully. But in fact, you are making stuff up. You're fantasizing. It's, it's like it's a it's a drug that makes confabulation happen. Yes, it's it's a waking dream. Uh, let's put a pin in narcosynthesis because guess what? Turns out to be crucial to our story. Um, less crucial to our immediate story is that she was also. A uh, uh, at the forefront of assisting people administering of lobotomies. <laughs> and in the 60s, uh, we're jumping ahead a bit, just before the Sybil book came out, she co-published her pioneering work on uh, gay reparative therapy. Wow. Yeah. So that's that, that's quite a trifecta. It's, it's the multifecta. Well, I mean, trifecta, and then you get to inventing multiple personality disorder. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, which that, is the ultrafecta. The, the list of things that were accepted at the time. I sure hope she was a staunch Freudian. That would be perfect. But I would also accept a staunch Jungian. Uh, she was a neo-Freudian. All right. And uh, if we were to have our, our Freud segment, uh, I think many of the things that you blame on Freud are, in fact, blamable on the neo-Freudians. Yeah, and, well. and he might agree with you on a bunch of stuff about the neo-Freudians. <laughs> well, as, as Marx once said, if there's one thing that's for sure, I am not a Marxist, so... It, it happens. You write a big old book in German and people go bananas. Yes. Uh, Freud said he was not a Freudian. Young said he was not a Jungian. Marx said he was not a Marxist. But I think we have wandered afield. Have we? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps, we perhaps it is our other personalities have drawn us afield. So let's, let's flash forward uh -huh. to uh, Manhattan in 1954, uh, where uh, Shirley Mason is uh, still troubled uh, and uh, discovers that Connie Wilbur, her beloved uh, psychiatrist from when she was uh, in her late teens, is practicing psychology in New York City. So she goes back to uh, Connie Wilbur, and the um, the connection was uh, mutual. They had a, a real bond uh, toward each other, which for those of you who know psychology know you're not supposed to have a two-way bond uh, in that sense. Uh, but anyway, she goes back to Connie Wilbur, and she doesn't have very much money, and Connie, uh, Dr. Wilbur treats her for a while. Uh, but then it looks like this is going to have to come to an end because she can't afford more treatments. And at that point, uh, Shirley Mason shows up uh, for her appointment in another persona. Mm. And she's suddenly a bunch of different uh, personalities, most of them uh, childlike personalities based on her childhood imaginary friend and childhood toys. And guess what? This is uh, where the both the narcosynthesis and the neo-Freudianism come in. Uh, Dr. Wilbur realizes she has an incredible case on her hands and begins uh, treating Shirley Mason in order to get at the buried memories of childhood abuse that she must surely have suffered under her mother, who must have been a schizophrenic. So are we going to add uh, hypnotic memory recovery therapy to this as well? Oh, yes, we are, Ken. Yes, the, the five-fecta. Yes. The, the, the rare pentafecta. Mm -hmm. So uh, she, uh, at various times, but always in different combinations and never one at a time, treats Shirley Mason with Demerol, Pentothal, Secondol, amphetamine-based painkillers, Thorazine, and Ritalin. 
And while she is on all of these things and becomes addicted to Pentacle. <laughs> that would give me multiple personalities, well, all that stuff. <laughs> yep. It would give anyone, uh, and more importantly, under the influence of all of these things, someone who's very insistently telling you that you were abused uh, by one or both parents will start to say that they were and will believe it. And mm -hmm. the uh, descriptions of the abuse become ever more baroque and horrible and include mental images that uh, we're going to skip over. Yeah, I think probably well, mostly. broken horrible. Uh, uh, yes. Use your use your imaginations. Now the uh, Seventh Day Adventists at the at the time in the uh, when uh, Shirley was growing up uh, did believe in enema treatments as an important regular thing. It uh, corresponded with that sort of super ascetic uh, American health movement that uh, yeah, led to the Graham Cracker that and wasn't, Kellogg's that, that cereal. That wasn't just the Seventh Day Adventists. That was a lot of the whole Upper Midwest food fattery and yeah. you know sort of organic foods and nutrition enemas were a big part of that whole um uh natural health uh baloney right and so I that mean, stuff right yes and <laughs> but there's, there's a big overlapping that the, the seven day adventists were part of that broader movement at right. that time um so anyway uh this uh experience of unnecessary enemas becomes uh, horrific torture and abuse and not only that but uh she begins to rediscover her memories of her mother running around Dodge Center, uh, defecating on people's lawns willy-nilly, and uh, uh, having uh, uh, orgies with her uh, young girl schoolmates in the woods. And uh, an incredible array of horrors is revealed that explains why her mind shattered into so many different personalities. And at this time, the boundaries between uh, Mason and Wilbur are really dropping down because essentially Shirley becomes Wilbur's employee and her job is to be her patient. And there are, you know, little side jobs that he gets, she gets for, but also she's working essentially as a maid and assistant and getting paid and being her patient. And so this, of course, is again a big boundary crossing thing so that if she has a big incentive to keep saying yes to what Wilbur thinks is the truth. In fact, one day she shows up with four pages of typewritten letter that she was uh, in which she, you know, she's reluctant to say that this in person, saying that you know what I faked all of this. I came up with this multiple personality thing. I knew about three faces of Eve, and I showed up uh, in order to make sure that you didn't leave me as my therapist. But now I realize that I've per perpetrated a terrible hoax. This, of course, I'm paraphrasing, and uh, I'm sorry, it's not real. And Wilbur says, oh, well, that's a sign that it is real, that you're saying it's not, because that's resistance. We've got to get to the bottom of this. This is more proof than ever. Um, are you familiar with that reasoning in other fields of elliptony and conspiracy, Ken? Maybe. 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 <laughs> yeah. So at this point in the uh, late 60s, uh, another woman, Flora Rita Schreiber, becomes involved in the whole business. She is a writer of uh, magazine pieces uh, back in the day when you could write 12 puff profiles for a mass market magazine. And that was a, uh, not only a good living, but a way better than average living. Uh, she specialized in like humanizing portrait of, uh, like the, uh, Eisenhower's daughters and so forth. Or I think actually it was, uh, LBJ's daughters. Um, she, she was actually more hooked into the, uh, the sort of Nixon side of the political spectrum, but she was a writer of puff pieces. Yeah. So she comes upon this story and, uh, oh, well, this is going to make a great book. And they decide to have a book and split the profits three ways. And so uh, Schreiber then starts to go around pitching this story to various publishers. And the publishers say, are you sure this is real? Or this isn't actually all that interesting. 
because yes, she has numerically more personalities than Eve did in the Three Faces of Eve story, but she they're all sort of kind of mostly really the same. Uh, isn't there anything more dramatic? Or aren't there more dramatic manifestations? Schreiber goes back to Wilbur and Mason and says, oh, they don't think it's interesting enough. And all of a sudden, Shirley Mason is telling the tale when in a fugue state, as in a different, in a different identity, she was taken by the government to wartime Amsterdam in order to uh, help free a political prisoner and then lost her memory of having done that. Uh, which makes the story much more realistic, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in 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 most cases of repressed memory, the government does kidnap you. I think that's what causes it, frankly. Yes, I think people have got the cart before the horse. Right, and of course, uh, she uh, she described this as occurring uh, during the Nazi occupation, when the U.S. government would be able to take a young girl from Dodge Center, Minnesota, drop her into Amsterdam, and allow her to perform a covert mission yeah well i mean the nazis they had the no hurting young girls policy yeah no who was i thinking of everyone else had that policy except stalin so at any rate schreiber uh, writes that into her book she punches it up and she takes it around again to various publishers and no mainstream publisher will touch it instead a uh, regnery press decides to publish it regnery press can you probably know well you probably know a bunch yes. of their books on uh, have a bunch of their books on your book they're a uh, classic uh, a staunch conservative press uh, designed to bring uh, key works of the conservative uh, ethos into public distribution. And they've published um, a magazine called Human Events that, I don't know if it slowly went crazy, but it certainly went pretty crazy. It's it's very exciting. It's like the nation for the right wing, you know, so it's on crummy paper and it, ex- it exists to shout at people who already believe it. And isn't like, um, like big, thick <laughs> telephone book size? Or, or uh, Human Events began thick and then became thinner, uh, much like the, <laughs> like, much like, like like many, the nation. Like many yes. experiences and ideologies. But uh, Reginary also was uh, William F. Buckley's first publisher, so it's not all crazy people. It's also, right. um, uh, it's the whole spectrum of, of the right. Uh, and Re- Henry Reginary just basically was existing to counterbalance what he saw at the time as a overwhelming uh, preponderance of left publishers. And he thought, gosh darn it, the other side needs to have a publisher too. But at any rate, their specialty uh, was not uh, vetting... Vetting psychological narratives. Right. <laughs> Except occasionally when you when you would write, when you would publish something by Robert Welch, which right. I guess is sort of the same thing. And uh, this was at a time when, you know, there, there was like a brother-in-law who was in charge. There's some other figure other than the founder who was trying to right. find some more commercial books to uh, fund all of the uh, heavy-duty uh, uh, right uh, side ideology. So at any rate, they... This non-major house publishes the book, uh, and it is a sensation. It goes crazy. It sells like uh, like your proverbial hotcakes, and it gets a TV movie deal. Uh, the TV movie, you may uh, have seen it. It has uh, Joanne Woodward and Sally Field uh, as, these, uh, as Wilbur and Mason, respectively. And, of course, she's described under her name as, as Sybil in that. And the uh, screenwriter for the television movie punches it up even further. And this becomes the the version of the story that enters uh, sort of the mainstream mythology. And so uh, Wilbur now goes to uh, uh, another uh, facility and she uh, leaves New York and she eventually becomes accredited at one facility and then gets to run another facility. And guess what starts happening? She starts discovering that... A lot of people have got multiple personalities. A lot of people have multiple personalities. That it's way more common than anyone thought. And... 
all of a sudden there's like four or five, six people who've got this and an entire culture of people who are become convinced that they have this disorder uh, springs up. And also uh, she sort of helps create the, the uh, repressed memory industry, right? Isn't she sort of a pioneer in that? Yes. She, uh, her work ends up uh, dovetailing with the Michelle remembers uh, uh, story. And that's part of the big satanic panic. Do you want to cover that part of it? Um, we do not have remotely enough time to talk about the satanic panic, but we will promise to cover it later um, in, in the show. I don't, I, I don't think that there's a way we can do it in, in this, okay. in this segment. So very briefly, then there's a book called Michelle remembers, which describes someone who under a, a similar, although perhaps not quite as narcosynthetic a, a treatment, but nonetheless, uh, similar treatment undercovers uh, memories uh, of similar horrible torture uh, and uh, strange behavior on the part of uh, the parents, but an, a, an entire satanic conspiracy behind it. And these two threads uh, weave together, and uh, people uh, other than Wilbur start to make elliptonic claims about people who have multiple personality disorder, or as it's later called, dissociative identity disorder. And it does wind up in the DSM, the official manual, that <laughs> psychological uh, malady is real, and then whether you can bill for treating it. But anyway, supernatural claims include that, or quad, or uh, remarkable claims, I guess, is uh, there are claims that some people change their eye color when they change from one identity to the other, from uh, their real self to one of their alters, as it's called, or that some are diabetic and some aren't. Now that's verified. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Nathan's uh, theory is that actually that uh, the serious illness that Shirley Mason had was uh, pernicious anemia, that it was a chronic uh, B12 deficiency, and that that dovetails with all of the symptoms she reported before she began to manifest these uh, multiple personalities. And so, and another point to make is that this has fallen into uh, disfavor uh, over the years and the, the, that wave is definitely crested. But at every stage of, of the way, there were people in the psychological community and in the journalistic community who were looking at this story and going, hey, wait a minute, this is fishy. Uh, and so whether it was another uh, psychologist that uh, consulted and checked on her or the reviewers of the original book when it came out or the people who reviewed the movie, uh, there's never been a point when there wasn't skepticism regarding this story. <laughs> Although we, sh we should point out that many of the skeptics were themselves confabulating other things like Herbert Spiegel, one of the leading experts on hypnosis, criticized the case um, after uh, everyone was dead. But he also wrote the forward to the control of Candy Jones, which was the sort of uh, uh, ground zero for the government mind control, kidnapping, blah, 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 part of uh, Sybil. So lots of lots more threads from this particular tapestry to go down. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and so uh, Mason and Wilbur continued to be involved in each other's lives until uh, Wilbur's death. It was easy enough to read from Schreiber's book and tell who she was and reporters uh, did go to Dodge Center, Minnesota, where everyone went, what? That couldn't possibly be true. And, uh, you know, teen lesbian orgies in the forest? There's no forest here. <laughs> it's Minnesota. That's, that's only the first of many problems with this story. Yes, there's, there's a long list of... But the point being that, yeah. uh, you know, that even, even the uh, elementary cursory look at Dodge Center, Minnesota that Schreiber did when she went there should have alerted somebody to right. something. So this obviously brings in a bunch of, as we've said, this is something that we don't perceive as inherently elliptonic, 
but or and then certainly by I think the general population at large still thinks that's just a straight up thing that happened. But there are so many parallels with uh, as you as we mentioned the Satanic Panic, which is his own topic. Uh, UFO abduction, which we have covered uh, before in the past and will continue to cover, I'm sure. And uh, in a way, it's sort of if you go to the wrong uh, therapist who considers hypnosis and a, a narcosynthesis as a way of fixing you, uh, what you wind up convinced happened to you can be wildly different depending on, on what happens there. So, as, uh, as you know, when we begin talking about government kidnappings, UFO abductions, and Satan... It's time to shut the door of the hut and walk slowly away, never looking back until we reach another hut. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Canon Robin. Take refuge in our patrons only moon base, along with such lunar luminaries as Brian Thomas, Gwendolyn Schmidt, Raphael Pabst, Andrew Young, Andrew Eichels. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>